Okay, cool. Uh, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, as he is now every Tuesday, Hugo Lindgren. Uh, and for those of you still getting used to this, we've changed the format where on Tuesday, Hugo and I have a conversation about different things happening in the world. And then on Thursdays, I'm interviewing uh, somebody else who has more interesting things to say than I do. So, Hugo, uh, welcome back. And uh, what's like our third or fourth of these? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to apologize to listeners for a second. They're, the uh, people upstairs from us are renovating their bathroom and there's a little bit of knocking. So that's the that's the real world sort of appeal of podcasts. So you get to hear people working on other people's bathrooms. Work from home. Yeah, they're, they've been, they're doing construction on our building, which they've now been doing for three years to uh, fix the, the local law 11. Like that's, we've had scaffolding and not just scaffolding, like a, a full on shroud in front of our building now for a couple of years. And that was one of the main reasons why uh, I suggested that we look at uh, amending some of the scaffolding laws because it feels like wherever you go in New York City, uh, there's scaffolding everywhere. And I think that is being done to satisfy the needs of a very small special interest um, at the expense uh, of everybody else. Um, but for reporters now who are looking to say that I do everything only out of self-interest, um, you can say that Yang's scaffolding plan comes from the result of me spending three years waiting for my building to finish. And another day. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So do you mind if we talk about your, your camp issue or should we not talk about that? Because that's a, a similar theme of, 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 yeah. Although I haven't heard back from Peter. So I, I emailed Peter right after we talked about it on Saturday night. So the, okay, the, well, you need to explain. No one knows who Peter so is. Here, here's the issue. So Hugo's kids and my kids not only go to the same school, they happen to also go to the same camp and it's kind of a quicker camp. They go to a quicker school. So it, it makes, sense but the camp is in maryland so it's about a five hour drive uh from here four four and a half if, if you make really good time and because of covid they are requiring parents to pick up their kids every two weeks take them off campus for the weekend and then bring them back the following monday which means rather than making you know a trip to take your kids to camp and trip to pick them up and maybe a trip for visiting day you are now going there every two weeks for us over an eight-week span. So it's five separate round trips to Maryland as opposed to, say, two. So it's an extra 30 hours of driving of which, you know, any hour of me on the road is detrimental to everyone's health, uh, including my own. <laughs> and so the conversation was when I asked the camp, well, why, you know, COVID, why do we have to do this? They said, well, the camp has to have a deep clean every other weekend. And I said, but they are a thousand percent clear that COVID is not is not. Uh, transmitted by surface, it's, it's transmitted by air, par- air particles. So you're not solving for anything if you do that. They said, "Yeah, well, it's the law. We have no choice." And as I was complaining about all this extra driving, which for me is stressful, just because every minute on the road is, is an adventure. Um, Hugo and I were at a party together on Saturday night, and the idea came up. Well, what if we just change the law in Maryland? Honestly, the idea did not come up. You had the idea. <laughs> was I already walking in with the idea? Maybe. It would never have occurred to me. <laughs> Maybe. So I had the idea. What if we just change the law? Would that be easier than 30 more hours of, of driving? And the answer is maybe yes. And so my assumption is that it's not actually a law. It's some sort of health ordinance, um, which means it can be waived pretty easily because it's just an administrative rule. But as, as you also know, there's a, there's there's probably a, a, a good deal of signaling in this, right? It's, it's, it's about the camp wanting to assure parents that they are doing the things they're supposed to be doing. Um, whether or not those things were actually effective or useful for, you know. Right. But you could argue that at least if your kid is fully vaccinated, and Abby will have had far more than two weeks since her second shot before camp starts, 
there's just no medical argument for this in any way, shape, or form. So uh, at, at the party, I emailed Peter Rice, who's the head of the camp, say, hey, any objections to my trying to change this law? I'd have to do it very quickly. Uh, haven't heard back from him yet, although I think most people probably don't operate um, in the same way that I always do work-wise, so it's still only Monday morning. Not Quaker camp directors anyway. Correct. So we'll see. But if, assuming he has no strong objection to it, uh, I will take a shot at it. And if it works, then uh, we can save ourselves from driving. Wow. Nice. Thank you, Bradley. Um, so we're going to talk about the Yang campaign, but we're going to do, we're going to pull that trick like grocery stores do where they put the milk in the back of the store. So you have to go through the whole store to get it. Um, and we're going to put it at the end of the podcast. So if you're here to to to, to listen to the latest uh, on the Yang campaign from its its chief consultant, uh, Bradley Tusk, then you're going to have to get go to the end of the podcast. Um, so what's our equivalent of like the National Enquirer at the front of the at the store by the checkout counter? Oh my God, that's a good question. It can't really be the Quaker camp, can it? That would be ridiculous. It's the least National Enquirer thing possible. <laughs> let's let's talk about the New York Times, shall we? So I, I was about to sure. I was about to text you an article. There was a really good article uh, in the sports section on Mike Schmidt um, and how he was the most like valuable draft pick ever to a team because he stayed with the same team and 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 had this incredible Hall of Fame career, as we know. And so it was anyway, it was a really great article. And there was this incredible little sub theme of the scout who 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 uh, who sort of picked him out, who who later committed suicide. And, and it was a great article. And um, but Schmidt Schmidt died. No, Schmidt didn't die. The scout killed himself. Ah, because well, yeah, in your in your note you said obituary, and I was like, wow, I'm surprised I didn't hear somewhere else. Somewhere. Oh, that was a separate topic. I was saying that that the best thing in the New York Times, I think, and I thought this for a long time, even when I was working at the New York Times, was the obituaries are just. They, they actually always make your life a little richer as opposed to the opposite. I, I find reading a lot of the newspaper, you're like, you know, I could have spent that time better. Um, but when you read the obituaries, they're just, they're, they're, I don't know, they're fascinating. They're always interesting. Um, and that would be one thing I would never want to give up. But you have, in fact, given up reading the New York Times. Is that correct? I have. That is zero tolerance. Like you, were, you were seriously not like, if I sent you that link, you wouldn't click on it just if you saw it was from the New York Times? There was a, I got a, from Rachel, who is one of the producers of our podcast and, and does a lot of the communications for, for me at, at Tusk Holdings, sent me uh, an invite a couple of, about a week ago for a meeting with some reporter from the Times. And I said, I am not attending because I no longer interact with the New York Times. But before that, my favorite Mike Schmidt anecdote. Mike Schmidt, for those of you who don't know, was uh, considered maybe the best third baseman of all time. Played for the Phillies, I think his entire career. One he did, whole career Phillies. Yeah. Th- three MVPs, I think. You know, great, great player. I think one 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 World, World Series. Um, but it was famous for being an asshole, like really just a dick, kind of like Barry Bonds esque. Um, but got away with a little more because the media hadn't quite evolved during his career as much as it had by the time the internet came around. And they asked Bonds what his favorite memory was from playing at the Vet, which was the, the stadium in Philadelphia until they until they tore it down. And they said it was a time the guy fell out of the upper deck. <laughs> Wait, Bonds said that? No, Schmidt said it. In his own stadium, he thought the best yeah. thing was oh yeah. God. better than any home run, better than the World Series, whatever. The time the guy fell out of the upper deck. I think that's how I remember the story. It's a good one. Uh, it, it made an impression. So, anyway, but in, in terms of the New York Times, look, I, I fully accept that there are things in the New York Times that are worth reading that I will miss out on. I like reading the book reviews. I like reading the stories about health and fitness and wellness. Um, obituaries, like you said, can be interesting. Um, but overall, look, and let, let's be honest, I can't spend scriptures of the time after they wrote like a completely absurd hit piece on me that they put on the front page. Um, but but I was kind of leaning in that direction already. 
simply because I don't like being told how to think. I want to be able to read news that is just news and facts. I don't want a constant mix of analysis, opinion from the reporter, and facts and reporting. Um, I don't. I will make up my own conclusions in my own mind based on getting the information. And any outlet, whether it's Fox News on the right or the New York Times on the left, that in, in the actual news reporting itself tells you, here's what's good, here's what's bad, and here's how you have to think about it, that just pisses me off, right? I would far rather have something neutral and then draw my own conclusions. And of course, they should have you know, an editorial page and an editorial section. You know, I may choose to read that and I may choose not to, uh, but I know what I'm getting into. But when every single article um, is infused with uh, opinion and analysis, then you sort of lose the objectivity of it. You know, I know firsthand how inaccurate the one about me was, but presumably that's the case with with most articles there. So um, I have given up reading the New York Times. There are a few things that I missed, but you know, I've I've made up the gap a little bit. I'm reading more the Washington Post. I'm reading the Atlantic uh, more right now. Uh, I go on the books, uh, the website, the Millions, to for some more book reviews. Um, the Athletic for sports, although time sports generally, despite your story about Schmidt, sucks anyway. Um, so you put that all together. I, I don't feel like I am losing out or anything, and I do feel like uh, I'm at least able to now consume information. Uh, without in a non-hectoring way. Well, it's interesting because I think people on on Wall Street have felt that way for a long time. I mean, there's a kind of paradox of of, of New York Times readership where people generally don't respect it for the subject area that they know well, you know, or that they're the expert that they're experts in, um, but they sort of trust it for everything else, which is. But, but there's a, it, there, where where it has changed in the last couple of years, and this is because their business model has changed is. There was still an assumption that the articles would at least attempt some level of objectivity, that they would present different points of view within the article itself. If they were writing something critical, they would have some quotes supporting the thing they were being critical of. And now it's just become 100%. This is evil because it's capitalist, it supports law enforcement or whatever it is. And therefore, we are only going to write about how bad it is. Um, that you know wasn't always true. That's because their business model has evolved and changed to one that's actually more profitable, where by being an outrage machine on the left, um, that is very appealing to a certain subset of, of subscribers. And both in terms of paid subscription and then advertising revenue, it is really, really helping their business. They are more profitable now than they've ever been. They're, they're, not, they're not more profitable than they've ever been. But yes, they, they, they aren't there. Aren't their subscribers up like 5x from yeah, before the Trump? Subscriptions are way up, although they, they, the, the growth has slowed since Trump's out of office. But but I mean, I don't think you can compare to, to you know, the 80s and stuff when the when the paper was just fat with ads. And, and uh, OK, but, fair enough. I mean, they were they were a Fortune 500 company um, in a world where that the advertising model has changed either way. Uh, they are vastly more profitable than they would have otherwise been. They figured it out. And, you know, I, I, I love this image of Sulzberger laughing all the way to the bank where his, his reporters and editors are all in on being woke and they're doing it all to sell more subscriptions to people who are all in on that so that he can make more money and the shareholders make more money. I almost respect the evil genius of it. Not, not to defend the New York Times because I, I don't feel like doing that, but I will say I don't, I don't think he's laughing all the way to the bank. I think he's filled with trauma about how to manage this thing that, that sort of has a life of its own. And, uh, and, I, and I also think that the, the sort of media business model that has been working for them in the last few years is, is, is a moving target. And, and I suspect there's 
um, many more chapters to go on 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 New York Times stability as a as a, as a profitable enterprise. I, I think it's a, they they will continue to 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 face pretty significant competition, right. and uh, they will have to continue to evolve. Either way, I didn't see the Mike Schmidt obituary. Okay, there we go. Um, we're gonna we're gonna talk. We're gonna switch as we do a lot in these conversations. Make a hard switch into a completely different topic and it was something you wanted to talk about which was going back to the movies so the first thing i want to ask you you have not yet been to a movie theater or you have i, ha- I have not yet okay. um i really like going to the movies by the way i like going to the movies even if i fall asleep um i still enjoy the experience of it and i fall asleep frequently is that because you just completely never go on your phone when you're in the movie or do you sometimes go? yeah sometimes i do but but generally speaking you know, I'll try. It, depending on what it is, I may walk out into the. If the movie theater is empty and I'm sitting in the back in the corner, I, I don't worry about my phone. If I feel like I could be bothering someone with the light, right. uh, then I'll, I'll leave. But uh, but over, overall, yeah, I just like being there. I like movies. Uh, and it's funny, I, I don't like watching movies on TV. I don't have the patience for it at home, but I do have the patience for it um, in a movie theater. So I haven't been back yet, but I was looking at a, a list of movies people were excited about for this summer and sent that to you. And, and there are some that I'm excited about, but he, here's really the question that I've been wondering about. So it, if you get vaccinated, it makes total sense to go see the movies. I don't even really know that you need to wear a mask, quite frankly, because uh, you're not going to get COVID from it. Right. But there are some people who are choosing not to get vaccinated and a pretty sizable amount. Right. I think like 60% of American adults at this point have had at least one shot, but that means 40% or something close to it have chosen not to because it is completely free and available to anyone who wants one. So let's say you make the choice not to be vaccinated. Now, logic would say as a result, you're being more careful than you or I would have to be, and you'd be wearing masks and avoiding movies and all that. But reality is the opposite, which is if you don't care enough to get vaccinated in the first place, you're probably not that worried about COVID, which means you probably are going to the movie theater without wearing a mask. So here's the question. Let's say you get COVID and you chose not to get the vaccine, even though it was free and available to everyone. Should insurance or if you're on Medicare, Medicaid, the government have to pay for your, your treatment? I would argue no. I would say that you knowingly incurred that risk. You chose to do so for whatever reason. And if you get sick as a result of it, uh, it's on you. And, and your medical visits around it, whether they're minor or severe, are your financial responsibility. Because otherwise, if it's insurance and all of the other premium uh holders, all the other customers in the company are paying for you. And if it's government, then all the taxpayers are paying for you. And I think you, you're responsible for your own choice. So that's interesting, Bradley, because what we've heard a lot about, you know, in, in terms of trying to get people vaccinated is are the carrot approaches, right? Uh, Ohio offering a, uh, a lottery prize or whatever. And, and, and you know, you get uh, tickets for lower prices or you get different kinds of benefits. But you're talking about a stick approach, like not a carrot, but a stick. Yeah, well... Yeah, or maybe it's not even designed to get more people to get the shot. It's just saying, you know, it's funny that people because the the real thing to do is not to punish people. To do it. it might incentivize them. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. It, it might. But let's let's even say that it didn't. It's more a question of, okay, you made this decision. You're a rational adult. You chose what you thought was best for you. Should there be costs incurred as a result of your decision? You bear those costs, not society, right? It's like when I was in Illinois, I remember we tried passing a, a helmet law for motorcycles, which I hope at this point they've managed to pass, but we couldn't do it uh, despite all of the common sense around it because the motorcycle lobby was too strong. And I remember saying, well, what if we, I don't care about the helmet, actually. Let's just say that if you're in a motorcycle accident, you weren't wearing a helmet, insurance doesn't cover your treatment. It's on you. 
So you want to make that choice, you live with it. I couldn't pass that either. But but overall, I bet did you try to pass? Um, I just I floated it in meetings and, and got it was it was the politics didn't change at all with that. So wasn't wasn't it wasn't worth the political capital we would have had to have spent to pass the bill. Um, you know, and, just and you think this one is worth it. Like, like uh, I, I've heard you. Yeah, this is different. This is look. I haven't heard him say this. This is different because motorcycles. Not that many people ride motorcycles. Most people who ride motorcycles wear helmets. So we're talking about a very, very, very small percentage of people. Something like thirty to forty percent of American adults have have chosen not to get vaccinated from a pandemic that shut down the entire country for well over a year. So the stakes are very different. In that article about Rich Paul, the the you know LeBron agent, uh, he estimated that thirty percent of NBA players have been vaccinated. Thirty percent. Yeah, so that's okay. But NBA players make a lot of money if they get COVID. Um, my view is, why should uh, the fellow? Let's say that that the Knicks have Etna. I'm an Etna uh, subscriber as well. Why should I subsidize Julius Randall's health care if he made a a choice? rationally and knowingly and willingly not to get the vaccine that that's on julius Randall, not on me tell me about the movie i'm most excited to see so from the list there was a list in the in the atlantic i'm excited for black widow so uh we watch a lot of marvel with with lyle and i'm i'm thinking it's not always good but it's sometimes very good um and scarlett johansson's a good actress so hopefully that will be good um it's funny i hate going to the theater i hate going to musicals but I kind of like musical movies, which I know is just a full-on contradiction. Um, but in the Heights, musical movies you like? What's the when Moulin Rouge would would be a good example? I love Moulin Rouge, right? Um, so um, in the Heights is Lin Manuel Miranda's show that has become a movie. Um, takes place in New York City. I, I'm 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 excited to see it. And then just from that list, there were a couple of thriller types: Stillwater and The Protege that I'd never heard of, but look good. And, one indie type movie called Zola. And then the other harder part is, you know, I'm going to have to take Lyle to see F9, which is the, you know, 15th Fast and Furious movie or whatever number they're up to now because there are also spinoffs that didn't count in the numerical ordering, um, Suicide Squad, Space Jam. So, you know, it'll be a, a busy summer at the movie theater for us. Wait, do you go upstate, like near your house? Do you, it, Yeah, sometimes. So there's a there's some theaters upstate. They're all very old school. Like they're from, haven't been updated since 1985. So like the seats are falling apart. You know, they're, they're, they're narrow and small. Um, but you know, it's also, by the way, it costs like half as much to get in. Um, yes. When I go to the movies, we go to the movies. So there's, there's one in, in Red Hook up there. That's pretty good. There's kind of an indie theater and Rhinebeck that's pretty good. So have you um, talked to our friend, David Malpe, who's buying that place in Millerton or he bought it? No, but I'm aware cause it came up at this party where we concocted the plan to free ourselves from the camp rules. Rather, you concocted the plan. You, <laughs> I mean, you, I you like got it. a person. You go just like the motorcycle rider or the person choosing not the anti-vaxxer. You've got to take some responsibility. For okay. your own I just I just want people to know that that this is the way your mind works, and I, I I'm not opposed to it in any way, and I, I feel like I'm 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 being sort of in, uh, enlightened by it in many respects. But I I just um, changing a, a state law to save myself driving to camp is not something that just occurs to me naturally. So all right, well e- either way, so so some, you say tomato, I say tomato, whatever. <laughs> e- e- either either way. Um, I would believe that you should bear responsibility for your choices. Um, okay. just like those people do. Fair enough. Um, we're going to do another one of those hard, uh, hard subject changes. And, um, the, the next thing we're going to talk about is meditation. Now, 
Bradley, um, we've we've had many conversations about this over the years because you've been you've you've actually tried to meditate in a whole bunch of different ways. You tried apps. You've actually had a coach, um, and and it's never stuck. And why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I've tried so hard to meditate. I've gone to transcendental meditation classes. I've had coaches come to my home. I've tried different apps. Uh, you know, head something, Headspace, Calm, a bunch of those. Nothing works. I think the reason why it doesn't work not work. Like what what happens? I can't clear my mind. I just think about something or I think about clearing my mind. But I am incapable uh, of of just sitting there and thinking nothing. The breath. Um, It's the breath, right? Yeah, but I so maybe I just don't have the discipline for it, but I'm pretty disciplined in a lot of ways. But like I, it, maybe it's just that it's too boring and it's not about clearing mind. But if my mind were truly clear, I don't think it would be as boring because I would feel very relaxed. And instead, I'm like sitting there, eyes closed, fists clenched, like cursing myself. God damn it. Clear your mind. Clear your mind. Clear your mind. You know, like some dad at a Little League game yelling at his kid. So like either one of two things happens. I then either spend the 10 minutes yelling at myself for 20 minutes or however long it is, or... I start thinking about work or the Mets or something else, which then can become a perfectly pleasant 10 or 20 minutes, but defeats the purpose of meditating. So um, I'm unable to do it. And the question that that it kind of prompted for me, at least, is should I force myself to keep trying anyway? And and should we force ourselves to do stuff that's good for us if it's hard? Right. Um, So if you were to say, should you exercise? I think most of us would say, yes, you should, whether you like to or not, because it makes a really big difference uh, in, in your health and the same thing with, with diet and with sleep. So I I guess the conclusion I'm reaching is maybe I should force myself to keep trying to meditate, uh, despite the fact that I'm unable to do it. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I, no, I don't think you should, but I, but I, I wonder if there's other ways to achieve the same thing, right? Like I, there's, there's obviously something about sitting in a quiet space that, that doesn't work for you. Like I, I've recently started like playing tennis in the mornings against the wall in Tompkins Square Park. And I find like just focusing on hitting the ball and nothing else, like you really just focus on that. And it does. So do do people try to um, hustle you and gamble when you do that? No. I used to play handball on Tompkins Square Park. Oh, you did? Yeah, this was like in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s. That's so hard for me to picture. Like you just like turning up there to like with like a little. No, no, no. My my friend Bob Lawson and I would, would play together. And we were like equally bad at it, but it was good because the better you are at handball, the worse of a workout it is and vice versa. So for us, it was actually a really good workout. Right. Um, but then, you know, people would always, we were like two, two guys in their like late twenties, early thirties. So they would come over and be like, Hey, you guys are pretty good. You want to play? And then you want to play for money? And like, you know, we were smart enough to, to not do any of that. But I do remember, you know, at least the attempt of being hustled frequently in Taka Square Park. That's kind of fantastic. Um, but you see, no one, there's no like real competitive game with hitting tennis. I mean, I guess you could invent one. Um, but uh, yeah, no one ever. Isn't paddleball that basically? No, no, no. It's just, it's just, no, it's a full tennis racket. Like it's not, it's just against it's right. a wall. Like couldn't, a wall. couldn't you, couldn't you, couldn't you combine that with paddleball and create some rules in a new game? I guess you could, but I, I, that would defeat the purpose for me because then I, but it, but but it it caught, it it creates the same benefit for you as meditation would. I think it does. I mean, I've meditated, I've used like the headspace app and I, I have, I, I, I'm not quite as resistant to it as you are, but I understand completely what you're talking about. Like it, it is, it is similar. 
um, that you just sort of, you find yourself fighting yourself and it just, that's like the exact opposite. But the other thing I did that did work too, have you ever tried cold plunges? No, I hate that. I don't like being immersed in water. Uh, well, I, mean, I don't, I don't like to swim. I don't like hot tubs. I don't like anything. <laughs> I don't even take baths. I just take showers. Well, that's natural. I think a grown man doesn't need to take a bath necessarily, although they, they could, there's nothing against it. Um, so I, I want to say one thing though. I remember when you brought up, this is something you wanted to talk about. I remember there was an article in Harper's, I think last year that meditation is actually bad for some people. Like they, they, How so? I, I mean, I think that, that there, I guess I, I'm going to forget exactly what the article's main points are, but the sort of point is like that there are people with mental illness and stuff that it, 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 it it, it, it sort of feeds obsessive like thoughts and things. Well, so I do have OCD, right? Mm -hmm. I think I've said that publicly before. Um, I have to be medicated for it. I've had it my entire life. So arguably, if the answer is you should force yourself to do things that are good for you, but there are just like you shouldn't fast on Yom Kippur if you're pregnant or if you're, you know, not taking your medication or whatever else. If you have things like OCD, then meditation is not really going to work for you and don't worry about it. Um, for the listeners out there, if anyone has used that as an excuse to get let themselves off the hook for meditating, uh, let us know because I would I would be happy to use that excuse as well. All right, we have one more subject we're going to talk about before we get to the to, to the little bit of yang at the end. But um, okay. uh, the, the the third subject is is it is it is it okay to operate a business just for fun and not for profit? Yeah. So so I, I sent you an article from the Post, New York Post. Um, about a diner on Avenue A between like, I don't know, 7th and 8th, I think, called Odessa. Have you ever been there? Yeah, yeah, sure. Not in a long time, but I have. So, old, right, me too. But it was like old Russian, I think Ukrainian specifically, diner with good, you know, pierogies and that kind of stuff and and, and good burgers and fries. And, and in much of my 20s, uh, when I was out having fun on the Lower East Side or in East Village, would, would end the evening there. Um, haven't been there probably since 2003 or something like that, uh, maybe even earlier. Um, but uh, read that it's up for sale. It had closed. And in fact, I walked by the other day and noticed it was closed. Um, and it's up for sale. And there was a question. Like, I almost texted some friends who you know used, used to go there with and say, hey, should we all put it in buy Odessa? And I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't want to own a diner. Um, but it, it did open up in my mind the broader question of, is it a good thing or a bad thing to open up a business or buy a business just for fun right and the 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 argument that it's a bad thing let's start with that and is that is that there are people right who operate diners near odessa um who yep. are competitors to odessa and if you're uh bradley tusk and you come in there and you'd be like oh this is a cute business i'd like to have this um and then you just you know you just buy it and then it loses 100 grand a year or whatever it loses and you're like that's ah, all right you know i can tolerate it and it's nice and you know i love to take my friends there for breakfast or whatever um and you just don't really operate it uh in a competitive manner you are yeah. basically taking money away from or taking business away from from you know real business people who are, who are potentially although you are creating jobs for the people who work there right so it, it cuts it cuts both ways um but yeah you're doing that that would be an argument and look another argument would just be well beyond the fact that the restaurant business is supposed to be incredibly hard and a terrible idea e even if you take something simpler like let's say the bookstore that we're doing it's you shouldn't open a business in a field you know nothing about because you're going to screw it up, right? That is a you know think about who's working on our bookstore project. You, me, Megan, Greg. None of us know anything. We all like to read. We don't like shopping at bookstores, uh, but none of us know anything about it. 
Uh, and my guess is we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. So it is dumb from a business standpoint and arguably because uh, this consumer discretionary spending is somewhat fungible. You're not really underlying helping the economy. You're just taking money out of someone else's pocket as a result. And any other bad arguments or reasons why you shouldn't do it to you? Um, no, I think that's. I mean, I think that's the main thing. I mean, I, I do. I, I. I don't. I'm not sure. I even agree with the point that you're creating jobs because if if you know if there's money to be made from operating restaurants in the area, those jobs will be created whether by you or somebody else. So um, I don't know that that you're really creating jobs. But you know, that's that's a that's a sort of theoretical debate. Yeah, well, it depends on what what would be in that space, right? In the the place where we're opening up the bookstore, I know the competing offer was for a gym, right? Now we're not. That was for all of the retail space over there at, at 180 Orchard. We took half. Is that right? Um, so we'll create some jobs at the bookstore, and they're going to be good jobs with benefits and all kind of stuff like that. But the gym would have created jobs too. So to your point, um, it, there may not be any net economic gain to our bookstore than if there were a gym there, there is a net economic gain if it were vacant completely, right? So then the question is, okay, what's your argument for it? And, and I think it's kind of psychic, but it, it, tell me if this makes sense, which is um, some of us are very lucky in that the thing that we do for a living, also something that, that gives us fulfillment and meaning from the work itself, right? That's great when that happens. But I would say that's only true for some small percentage of people, right? Most people work to make a paycheck to support themselves, feed their families, whatever. So the question is, if you make a paycheck, but it's really just a paycheck, and let's say it's a it's a healthy paycheck, so you actually have the ability to do other things with the money, um, how should you then proceed, right? So I think the normal course of action would be, I, I'm a partner at Goldman Sachs, but I, I secretly kind of hate it, but I can't admit that to anyone, but I love the money that I make. And so I'm going to buy, you know, a huge house in the Hamptons or a Ferrari or whatever it is to basically compensate for the fact that I'm working around the clock on something that I don't really feel that great about. Um, and that's sort of the typical way that that goes. And I guess that does fuel a good chunk of the consumer economy. But you could also argue, let's say that you were that partner at Goldman Sachs, but you had a passion for Ukrainian food, right? <laughs> or you had a passion for, for just service or something else. So what if you bought Odessa? And you operated at a loss, um, but it was something that you really cared about. And you felt like you were providing a real benefit to the local community uh, and maybe helping keep the heritage, the Ukrainian heritage of these village alive. That would arguably still be a lot cheaper uh, than, than buying a mansion in the Hamptons. And you might feel a lot better about yourself. So I just wonder if there's not a lot of spending that happens from rich people um, on material items that, as we all know, have limited utility in terms of their ability to, to generate happiness. And that if you were to buy a services or retail business instead, if you're passionate about that particular topic, like, like I am with books, right? So even though I'll lose money, most likely, uh, I at least uh, care a lot about it, um, that that is actually a better and cheaper way to spend your money um, than by buying stupid shit. What do you think? Well, I definitely think it's better than buying stupid shit. I mean, there, there, there's, um, there's actually an article in that in that newspaper you don't read, the New York Times uh, today about. I never heard the, of it. The, Which, what do you what do you, you call it? I, I can't remember the name. Um, yeah, the uh, about the 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 drama bookstore that's uh, across the street from the New York Times actually that that um, that Lin Manuel Miranda like I, I guess he and a few other people went in and it had been this long struggling thing that sold you know mostly scripts for for, for right. plays. 
Um, and he, uh, he stepped in and kind of stabilized it and it's become, you know, it's funny and it was, it's kind of a great thing. I mean, I love that store because, you know, they just have shitloads of like scripts that like are otherwise kind of hard to get. And, um, there they are and you can just go discover stuff and it's a pretty awesome place. And so that's a real public service. Like that would not exist, you know, in, in that, at least in that guise, um, without that, um, intervention. So it's a really specific thing, you know, whereas, like opening like a dress shop or, you know, the kinds of things that a lot of, a lot of rich people do um, as a sort of sideline are, 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 you know, have little kind of extra benefit. So I, I, I support it. And, and I think actually the bookstore that, that, that we're working on, you know, we really have goals that are different than just a shop, right? We want to, we want to really create a destination and, and, and the idea of books is something that can bring together all New Yorkers. It's not, it's not meant to be a place for, you know, like downtown literary snobs or, or, um, or any one niche, or, um, it's really meant to be a place where like people from the like local area can come in and record their podcast and, 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 and yeah. see events and stuff. And, and we're really going to to do a lot on, on, on community engagement. And we're also going to really try to draw in, you know, people who are in the neighborhood as tourists and stuff. We want to, um, you know, want to hit like, you know, Russ and daughters or, or Katz's or some of the other things in the area. So I, I feel like, I feel like it's got a lot of potential beyond just like a bookstore, you know, it's, it's got some extra meaning and I think that's what makes it valuable. So let's hope, let's hope. All right. And Yang, um, uh, uh, we're going to talk about that for one second. Now there was big news, um, this weekend because, um, AOC finally came out with her endorsement in the, um, in the race and, that surprised you did not surprise you what how does it leave? um it didn't it didn't it, it didn't surprise me nor did i really care i tell you if, if anything i was minorly relieved by it i guess we should because wiley who was a, it was a so, so maya wiley is a civil rights lawyer a contributor to msnbc was bill de blasio's counts general counsel at city hall um and she is you know one of the sort of eight candidates for mayor that are seen as as serious candidates um she polls consistently it's somewhere between like eight and eleven percent and has been throughout um so so is in the mix but definitely in the second tier of candidates in terms of of winning um and the other two progressive candidates scott stringer and diane morales um same thing stringer was considered to be a front runner um but then he's been hit now by not one but two different allegations of sexual assault um, so his his support has fallen somewhat as a result of that. Morales, uh, in addition to being lesser known, uh, her entire campaign staff, or a good chunk of them, uh, wanted to form a union uh, for the campaign. Uh, she said no, as many employers do, and they quit. Um, so she does not really have a functioning campaign at the moment. So I think AOC's endorsement of Wiley, within the internal battle between Wiley, Stringer, and Morales for progressive votes, um, might slightly help um, Wiley, but well, overall, I mean, Wiley slightly though. I mean, she's the biggest. See, here's why: like, because I don't New think endorse because endorsements don't matter. Like, I don't think it matters if who Chuck Schumer endorsed or Andrew Cuomo even before his scandals or Bill De Blasio or anyone else. Short of Barack Obama, I don't think any politician could come into this race, issue an endorsement, and it would mean anything at all. Um, look, and this is a thesis something you and I have talked about before, but. Um, Faith in institutions has been plummeting in this country since the 1960s, right? People don't trust the government. They don't trust the media. That's our whole conversation just about the New York Times. They don't trust the church. They don't trust Wall Street. Um, and, and that trust has all gone into a vacuum, right? And, and at least when it comes to electoral politics, I think it's been replaced by the ability 
to see the candidates in a much more immediate and direct way, thanks to technology. And voters are basing their decision on who to vote for. And I think the elections of, of both Trump and Obama are good examples of this, um, based on the visceral connection they, they form with the candidate, um, not based on who a union or a newspaper or another politician tells them to vote for. And I think the person that understood this first was AOC, right? So she saw that even though her, the incumbent congressman that she defeated, Joe Crowley, was the head of the, the Queen's machine. He was kind of the most powerful party boss in New York City. What she realized was the machine is dead. Nobody gives a shit, but nobody sort of seems to have realized that either. I'm going to challenge this guy that no one else thinks could would be possibly feasible. So I'll have very little other competition so I, I can solidify all the other voters um, and run a campaign aimed at kind of white hipsters. Um, and because turnout is so low, that's enough to win. That's exactly what she did exceptionally well, right? She spotted this and capitalized and it before most people did. Um, but she's also subject to the same laws of polit political gravity as everybody else, right? So for the same reason that all, all the people who endorsed Joe Crowley didn't make a difference, I don't think her endorsement really makes a difference either. Well, here's the, here's the difference. It, it, I mean, the, the difference is uh, I, I think of her endorsement potentially as almost like an Oprah-like effect, right? It's 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 like it's like people don't necessarily think that like Oprah knows what like great literature is like more than other people do. But they there's a kind of mood affiliation that that people have with Oprah. They 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 want to be part of her vibe. They want they, to be they right. So yeah, I understand that. But let's say that in this case, the people who might have that benefit from that Oprah effect, they're already voting in the primary, and they're already progressives, which means they're already set with either Morales, um, Stringer, or Wiley anyway, right? So she might have shifted votes just in the same way that like. Economists argue that public financing for like a sports stadium is a terrible use of, of taxpayer money because when people spend money on ball games, they're just spending less on movies and bowling and other stuff, and it's all just fungible, and it's the same discretionary spend that just shifts from one recipient to the other. This is the same discretionary spend on, on, on politics. People who care enough about AOC's endorsement are already voting in this primary. They're already voting for one of the three progressive candidates. So it might benefit Wiley at the expense of Stringer or Morales, but it doesn't change the underlying nature of the race at all. Let me ask you quickly, and then we, we've got to go, but um, the uh, Adams is 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 doing quite well. Um, yep. Uh, uh, doing well in the most recent poll. Um, this made me wonder if the, uh, the ability of the New York Post to kind of set the narrative tone for New York City remains... A kind of underrated strength. I, I yeah, it's, I, it's a good I question. Every day, I don't even read it, and I'm kind of aware of 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 its influence. You know what I mean? It, it does kind of permeate the culture somehow. Yeah. No. Look, it, it 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 does do a good job of capturing the zeitgeist. And look, the zeitgeist in this campaign has changed, and that's from a Yank standpoint our greatest challenge. One of the reasons that we were uh, ahead of everyone else for the first few months of the campaign is that was during COVID. Uh, Andrew was leading the charge on recovery and optimism and how we can bring things back. That's what voters were interested in. And as a result, our message really worked um, and we did really well. Um, over the last few months, two things have happened simultaneously. One, um, COVID has become much less of a problem, right? People are getting vaccinated. Things are opening up. Life is returning to normal. It's nice outside. People are all enjoying the weather. Um, but two, crime and shootings and gun violence especially has skyrocketed, right? So as a result, the number one problem went from being COVID to shootings and violence. Uh, Eric Adams is a former cop 
And so he's claiming the mantle of being the public safety candidate. And so the zeitgeist is kind of working for him at exactly the right moment. Um, the election is going to be really close, right? So maybe he wins by a bit. Maybe we win by a bit. Maybe Garcia surges. I don't, I don't know. Um, but certainly, you know, the post endorsement of Adams, I don't think really matters specifically, but the post pushing a narrative of the city is out of control and there's just gunfire everywhere pushes voters towards, uh, pushes TV reporters towards covering that a little more than they might otherwise. And it pushes voters towards, you know, a public safety candidate. But with that said, you know, there's, there's the famous saying, if it bleeds, it leads. So, um, You've also got TV news sort of reporting constantly on, on every shooting, and there's been tragically far, far, far too many, any or too many, but a 10-year-old boy was killed in Farakwe over the weekend over literally nothing at all. Um, so with that happening, there's a huge amount of attention paid to it. I think the Post contributes to that zeitgeist and to that swell, um, but I don't know that they dictate it. Um, until next week, Bradley. That was good. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Hugo. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, I'm supposed to ask you guys to rate and review us. So if you don't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and that's it. We'll see you next time.